So already, gentlemen, I kind of want to start off with an apology, but let me give the explanation first how this all happened. Um, basically, I'm cursed, if you're curious. And if you can't tell the way I said cursed, um, my S's are sizzling more than usual right now. Huh. And let me explain to you why that happened. Basically, I've been doing a lot of impersonations, as you guys know, and definitely on the virtual gimmick table. I've developed a very good Ric Flair that makes fun of the fact that he is sizzling his S's a lot more. <laughs> I've always made fun of Stone Cold Steve Austin for not properly pronouncing his S's. Uh, Dusty Rhodes even's got a little bit of a sizzle to it. So I'm sure as Nicholas is finding out right now, like, gosh, Jake's voice sounds a little bit different. I'll tell you why. My front teeth are fucking rotting right now. So there's huh? a chunk inside. Yeah, there's a chunk missing right now. And it just happened the last couple of days. So I'm just getting acclimated to my new mouth right now. <laughs> I have no dental insurance right now. Oh, boy. Uh, I will need to pay for dental insurance for at least six months before I can get this fixed. So as you can tell right now, there's a bit more of a sizzle to it. I'm going to get better at uh, talking. But I feel like because... I was doing this Ric Flair impersonation, like, it's like going on like this, it's Ricky Flair, guys. Like, going on, Ric Flair, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, guys. Because of my history with Ric Flair, that man is a witch, and his whole purpose in life is to fuck me over. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like because I was finally taking shots back at him in a public forum, he's like, no, that's not the case, baby. Let me blow a witch's boo together for you. Yeah. Oh, man, Scott, we're going to fuck you over real good, baby. That's right. Oh, Ricky Flair, we're going to put a curse on you, baby. And you're not going to be able to pronounce S's like I do. It's okay. So I blame Ric Flair that my the fact that my teeth are rotting. To clarify, if you're like, man, Manscout sounds very different right now. I'm just turning into an old wrestler who has rotting teeth. That's all I am. That's what I'm doing. Jake, you, you set yourself up for this. What more perfect voodoo doll could there be than a Manscout Mini? I know. You know, I should have been suspicious when uh, uh, Richard Fleer bought a Slam Buddy <laughs> on, on Manscout Monday. Well, welcome to Tim Bell Pod. I am Nick. I'm joined by Micah. I'm just glad to report nothing has changed in this country since we last reported, so I'm just going to not comment on anything that didn't change. All right, no one's going to get this unless you're a nerd like me who's watched 4,000 shoot interviews. Today, we are joined by a true legend in the sport of wrestling, the man scout Jake Manning. Hello, oh! hello, hello. I, I'm currently eating peanut butter oatmeal to cure the S's in my mouth by dulling them down with peanut butter. So <laughs> I'm going to do this entire episode with peanut butter stuck in my mouth. Cool. Jake, if it makes you feel better, I didn't really tell a difference, but now that you brought it up, that's all I'm going to focus on all episode. <laughs> that's all I ever think about now while I speak. So I am fucked. Today's episode is brought to you by our Be The Booker tier on our Patreon, and we can all give a big thank you to Miles Kane for making sure we cover the one and only Kamala. Yeah. Let me give a big thank you to, to Miles, because he was very generous. On Manscout Monday, he bought a lot of gear. He bought a $5 wrestling, piece of $5 wrestling history, the sign that was hanging up for Trainwreck. Oh, nice. Freight Train wrestled Eugene. I got Freight Train to sign it, Caleb Connolly to sign it, and me to sign it, because I guess fuck Colt and Marty, but they live in Chicago. I couldn't get them <laughs> to sign it anyways, but regardless, big thank you to Miles Kane, because he was actually the one that commissioned uh, the Man Scout Slam Buddies. Oh, so, wow. So once I saw those, and then I reached out to the guy that made them, I was able to go ahead and sell those and have Man Scout Monday, which the next Man Scout Monday will probably have turnbuckle pads, so watch out for that. Nice. 
So this episode is probably the most perfect summary of 2020 that we could have possibly done. There's uh, some racism, tons of horrible things happen, and it ends in a little bit of COVID. So this is 2020 perfect summary to close out the year here. And yes, for Kamala, who had a career that was wild and diverse to say that he once wrestled a bear, but never wrestled Ric Flair. That's right, baby. He never wrestled Ric Flair. You know what I'm saying? Not a Hall of Fame Ric Flair. How's business, guys? How's business? <laughs> let, let me let me check out. Let me let me let me check. Let me loop you up real fast. Mm, looks like you're about forty thousand dollars low, baby. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it. James Arthur Harris was born May twenty eighth, nineteen fifty, in Senatobia, Mississippi. And the only interesting thing that I could find, because Born on the same day with some British author that wasn't fun, but James was the most popular baby name of 1950. Is that interesting? I'm not sure. Nick, interesting or not? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's cool to know. <laughs> James was one of six kids born to sharecroppers on a Mississippi plantation. Sharecropping being the exchange where landowners let you farm their turf and uh, usually live on campus there in exchange for a share of what you grow. It's usually heavily rigged in favor of the landowner. So uh, needless to say, the Harris family was not super well off. Oh, so basically it was like college football? That's basically what it was like? (laughs) College football? Okay, so the whole family were basically like college football athletes. Got it. Cool. They didn't get a video game, though, where they got their likeness stolen, though. So that was unfortunate. Things would get uh, worse for James when James was around four years old. His dad went to a dice game in the woods of Mississippi where he was shot and killed after a big win. Good God. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry to make light of a situation, but (laughs) listen, crime and sports does this shit all the time. I think we're allowed, okay? (laughs) I think we're allowed to make light of shitty situations. I mean, this is a podcast about dead wrestlers, and it's under the comedic session. I mean, what do you want? somber tone in in the comedic session i think not sweet all the blame goes to jake awesome yep cool great fantastic (laughs) can you just picture like hell yeah fucking sevens bam (laughs) like like the highs and lows of that situation just comedically that seems like something that'd be in an eddie murphy movie i not a good one but like like a like a norbert 2 maybe i don't know i did like i i like norbert but like the sequel would have been shit let's be honest sorry i don't want to be that guy but it's norbit not norbert (laughs) (laughs) fuck off (laughs) that's the appropriate response jake that's the appropriate response yeah uh, that just goes to show you, Nick, gambling just doesn't fucking pay. All I said was dice game. They could have been playing Dungeons and Dragons. You never yeah, know. Yeah, 20, yeah. 20 sided dice. As a, 20 sided dice game. As the dungeon master, I decree that you die, motherfucker. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that how Dungeons and Dragons end? I've, I've never met anybody that plays Dungeons and Dragons other than Brandon Cutler. So I just assume that Brandon Cutler is shooting people in the face all the time. Following the tragic passing of his father, the family moved to uh, Coldwater, Mississippi, a very segregated, violently racist place, which is redundant because I said Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, They get back into uh, a similar situation when his mother remarried another sharecropper. James played football in 8th and ninth grade, but it was around that time that he decided to drop out of school, thinking that he was just going to be a farmer anyways. Why is he wasting his time in school? 
Yeah, why am I playing football when I'm already technically playing college football right now? Like, (laughs) there's no point. I'm living the life of a college football athlete right now. What's the point of playing football in high school? This is dual redundancy, much like Nicholas saying that there is racism in Mississippi. Sorry. (laughs) Education is the payment. Education is the reward. Yeah, in Mississippi. Oh, sorry. I got to stop. <laughs> I mean, we're just dragging Mississippi 5,000. <laughs> that was, uh, did you see the governor, I think, was like, if Biden is elected, we're going to secede. And literally <laughs> yeah. everyone was like, fucking secede then. No one gives a shit, Mississippi. And then it all popped up. It's like, uh, Mississippi's 50th in education. And that was the only response. The, the only person who would care is the state that's 49th in everything, because now they'll be the worst. Shit. Being poor and most likely being a teenager uh, eventually led to James doing some minor shoplifting. And this got him some heat with the law. And even though they could never pin anything on him, (laughs) this uh, jumped up a notch when James broke into a house. So this fucking wannabe John Wayne cop gave him the whole this town ain't big enough for the two of us speech. And as James put it in his book, he said, uh, back then, if you didn't leave, like they said, you would be found dead somewhere. Yeah, that's about right. So he relocated to Florida, and he would continue his farming career. You know, working on the farms, he made some friends. He was out fishing with the boys when they started talking about wrestling, and he heard stories of Eddie Graham and, and great Malenko, and this got James interested in wrestling. His friends took him to his first ever match uh, at Championship Wrestling of Florida, and he was hooked, although he never saw himself becoming a pro wrestler. But that would change in 1970 when James moved up to Benton Harbor, Michigan to crash with his sister. James was putting in some applications with no luck while riding along with his sister's boyfriend, and James kind of jokingly tossed out, well, might as well become a pro wrestler because, <laughs> you know, he's, so, he's a big guy, you know. He informed him of episode 42 of Tim Bell Pod, Bobo Brazil. So James met up with Bobo and kind of, sort of started training with him and Tiny Tim Hampton. It sounded more like he was just setting up rings and stuff. Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me, too. That's a part of wrestling training. So, I mean, that's that's how you get started. I mean, that's everybody who went through the Charlotte territory that got training here with, like, I think Gene Anderson, basically the whole thing was, or I think even Klondike Bill was involved with a little bit too. I, I'm drawing a blank exactly who it was, but I think it was Gene Anderson. It was basically, like, if you were part of the training in the Charlotte territory, you would set up the ring, and then you would run the stairs, do up all these blow-up drills, and then wrestle. So that was just wow. kind of part of the deal. And so basically, you did like half an hour of wrestling, but you set up the ring, blow-up drills, so Gene Anderson could stretch you. And they're like, hey, you're getting trained right now. Keep giving us free labor to set up this ring. And then, of course, Kamala's like, this is just like when I played college football, guys. I can't believe it. <laughs> So uh, he didn't like deep dive into his wrestling training up in Michigan because they had the first big snow there and he was like, I'm fucking out. (laughs) He straight up moved. He went back to the south uh, over to Arkansas. He continued training in Memphis under uh, Mario Galento. Soon after, James would have his first match ever against the great Mephisto. (laughs) Frankie Kane, son. Frankie Kane. And this would be him making his debut in 1978 using his old high school football name, Sugar Bear Harris. After Sugar Bear's debut, he would start working in the Deep South, the I read on parlor Wayfair Mills Kids to Liberals South. 
And Big Sugar Bear, he was no dynamite kid, to say the least. But he was still 6'4", 400 pounds, which was three-fourths of the battle back in the day. On top of that, he had some charisma. I mean, just like watching his shoot for five minutes, I was like, I fucking love this guy. (laughs) Soon he would start getting work if for no other reason he was a very impressive guy to have come in and lose to your guy by 79 he had worked his way into the nwa where he was managed by percy pringle and according to a good old cage match a very green harris was facing guys like gary hart the spoiler and gino hernandez since we brought up cage match the thing that made me sad his very first credited match on cage match he's ugly bear harris so right off the bat yeah no just so fucking mean (laughs) By 1980, Sugar Bear was in Memphis, where he was mostly a job guy, before working his way to winning the Southeast title. The big guy would eventually form enough connections to do some work in Germany, and that led to him getting a job in the UK, where he spent an entire year of his career wrestling as Mississippi Mauler. Check out his match. I think it's on YouTube. It's Mississippi Mauler versus Tommy Tyrone. It's pretty cool to see. You get to see him in Kamala-esque face paint before he was Kamala. Uh, he's doing a heel king character, and he's got like a Clint Eastwood style Serapa or Serape. I don't know how the fuck you say that. But my favorite bit is he is the Mississippi Mauler, and he is he he is built from Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> Makes total fucking sense. I've never seen that before. Was he doing like some of like the the Johnny Saint stuff and the Tony Sinclair like fancy wrestle stuff? The the guy he was up against was doing that, and then James would just grab him and throw him three fourths across the ring. <laughs> Which is funny because those rings were like twelve by twelve <laughs> yeah. feet. So dude, he's, he was you're you're, you're spot on there because he throws him and it's those spots where like half his body hits the ring and half hits the ropes, and you're like, oh god, is he okay? Shit. Like he bounces off it like a bouncy house, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. and then like I, I, I don't know why. I get it's like Johnny Saints in the back, like, hey, I go up, I go down, I go through your legs, and I grab you in a Roman knuckle lock, and he's like, nah, bro, how about I just throw you around? That's what people want to see. Yep. Okay. <laughs> it's also cool to see. Uh, you get to see James before he kind of got in big belly Kamala shape. Like James is in good shape here, and it, you get to see. How he, he he plays a big, intimidating, like confident brute type heel king character. And it's interesting just to see him, just how, how he handles his body differently. He has one match against Honey Boy Zimba in, in England. And you get to hear him cut an angry, passionate promo where he compares himself to Muhammad Ali. It's so interesting just to see him totally out of that childlike Kamala gimmick and to show the range and uh, how much he could control all the aspects of his characters. In the United Kingdom, Mahler worked upper mid card, sometimes the main event, taking on English legends like Giant Haystacks. I don't know, Zack Sabre Jr., I don't know anyone. In June 1981, Mahler competed in a tournament for the vacant WWA world title, losing to Wayne Bridges in the finals at Wembley Arena in London. And Wayne Bridges is a pretty big deal. UK wrestling legend, Olympian. So James may have wrestled his entire career in England had it not been for breaking his ankle. I assume he was trying to guard someone from the N1 mixtape tour. Oh, Oh, baby! He uh, flew back to America to heal up and start looking for work. Since all this stuff was coming across the pond on a boat and highspots.com didn't exist yet, he made the drive to Memphis, stopping at Mid-South Coliseum, hoping to borrow some ring gear from his friend Dream Machine. Which, by the way, Dream Machine, if you're not aware, was basically a guy that was 
I don't think they've ever said this before. This has been Dream Machine was basically a ripoff of Dusty Rhodes. Like he was, they put a mask on him, and he came out and talked like this, baby. I tell, I tell you, <laughs> oh, the, yeah, the yeah. Mid South Coliseum, I'm gonna take on Dairy the King Lawler. <laughs> almost like a, like Lawler's dig at Dusty Rhodes, almost too. For whatever reason, Memphis would do these little inside jokes for like a week. Like, oh, let's go make fun of Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Or let's make fun of Ric Flair. They'd have some job guy who'd be like the nature boy, fucking Carl Fergie. You know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. the fuck. Like, they just would do this shit all the time. But like, the Dream Machine was this long running thing. They even had dirty roads instead of dusty yeah, roads. Yeah, I've heard that one before. So, like, they, whatever reason, Lawler and Jarrett just had a fucking thing against <laughs> Dusty, and they, like, did it a couple of times. But Dream Machine, really good wrestler. I think he was in him and Porkchop Cash Jr. Not Porkchop Cash. The Porkchop Cash Jr. is my Porkchop Cash Jr. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my $5 wrestler, Porkchop Cash Jr., but Porkchop Cash, the, the original, him and Dream Machine, they had a feud with the Fabulous Ones. And Jimmy Hart said, no, the Fabulous Ones are gone, baby. They are gone, baby. No, I got the new Fabulous Ones. And it was Dream Machine and Porkchop Cash. And then they basically redid the vignettes that the, the Fabulous Ones did. So, like, there's this guy that was pretending to be Dusty Rhodes, pretending to be one of the Fabulous wow. Ones. Who, uh, it was this very weird meta thing uh. going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there was layers to it. And just Jimmy Hart going, come on, baby, this is what I tell you right here, baby. Come on, I, I, listen to baby. I tell you, Vince is going to call me at any minute. Vince is going to call me any minute, baby. I cannot be anywhere near Chris Jericho, baby. I cannot be anywhere. <laughs> I, Chris Jericho going to be in the same room as me a couple days apart. I know we go to the same Kroger all the time, baby, but I can't be there. I can't be there. No, baby, I can't. I can't because Vince can call me anytime. I need to be available, Vince, baby. I don't want you know how they are, baby. You know how they are. <laughs> Sorry, that was an inside joke for me because Jimmy Hart canceled on a virtual gimmick table because Chris Jericho was going to be signing in the same room two days earlier and couldn't wow. get it through Jimmy's head because <laughs> like, Jimmy was so afraid to be anywhere near an AEW guy, even though. Uh, he probably goes to the same grocery store as Chris Jericho every single week, but he just couldn't <laughs> be in the same room as him, even though Chris Jericho was going to be in that room two days earlier. Jimmy Hart is a crazy old man. It and I love like him to death it for it. Crazy. And I cannot wait to go through his storage locker to have a multitude of auction items for the rest of our career. I don't know what's in that storage locker. It may be all garbage. And it may also be these WCW figures that apparently exist of Jimmy Hart being black. Oh, I don't uh, even know about this. I they, know. They uh. the, there are WCW action figures where people that are making the action figures are like, oh, Jimmy Hart from Memphis. Let's just make him black. <laughs> so like there, so like there are WCW action figures where Jimmy Hart is black and they sold them and they were just like, fuck it. We don't give a shit. And I'm just like, <laughs> whoa, this is disturbing, which I'm sure we're going to have in some discussion about race pretty soon. So this is not going to be a very timely discussion. So. All right, well, that is a perfect segue. While James was going to meet up with Dream Machine, Jerry Lawler saw him and immediately thought that the sizable James Harris would be perfect for this really racist idea he had. So uh, Ugandan president Idi Amin had just admitted to being a cannibal, yeah. which would only be like the ninth worst thing about Trump. But with that kind of in the zeitgeist at the moment, Lawler thought, we need an African cannibal. Now, this gimmick, looked at through the eyes of 2020, is problematic at best. Yeah. And uh, that leads to something we've talked about on this podcast a lot of times, having no representation versus having poor representation. And 
what I wanted to do, instead of having that conversation ourselves again, was bring in some uh, people of color to share their thoughts on the Kamala gimmick, specifically that argument, and I will play a few of those now. Chris Bornet, writer and director of the documentary Lady Wrestler, The Amazing Untold Story of African American Women in the Ring. You can find him at Chris Bornet as well as LadyWrestlerMovie.com. I think Kamala's character appearing in a costume replicating or imitating African garb is an offensive stereotype, especially considering, according to biographical information about him, that anyone can find by Googling him. He was actually not Ugandan, but he was born in Mississippi. So he was not African, but African-American. And it seems like it's sort of like the wrestling equivalent of Native American stereotypes and other sports like baseball and football. The trope of the African savage has a long history in wrestling. When I was doing research for the Lady Wrestler documentary, I came across female versions of characters like Kamala, such as the African princess and the African pussycat. Now, those women preceded Kamala because they were wrestling in the 50s when Kamala was just a child. So that just goes to show how long the African savage trope has been around in wrestling. And what's more offensive than the African savage stereotype itself is that wrestlers like James Harris, who portrayed these characters, were, in their own words, underpaid and exploited by the wrestling industry. James Harris may have gained a degree of fame out of playing Kamala, but not much else. He said in an interview that he never earned enough money to achieve any kind of lasting financial security or a legacy to leave his family. And unfortunately, that's been a reality for a lot of African-Americans, not just in wrestling, but in many other industries. Next up, we have Damon Thompson. He is a podcaster hosting Damon Does the Six Questions. Uh, I think Manscout was actually on there. He also has Different World, Same Story, and you can find him at Damon Does. First off, I'd like to thank Nick for asking me to do this piece about whether Kamala's gimmick was racist. As a black man, I'm usually asked about race when someone wants to be racist with permission. I did some research about who and how the gimmick was created, and this is what I found. It was created by two non-melanated men in Memphis, Tennessee, where they shot Martin Luther King, and to, quote, tap into the racist background of Memphis fans to sell more tickets, end quote. I reserve the right to be wrong, but that is racist. As far as representation, here's how far we have to go in this day and age in 2020. Okay, this guy is a monster. He's jacked. Just super muscular. Exactly what Vince McMahon really likes. Like, look at him. He's so vascular. And he can move. Look at him. He has a championship amateur wrestling background, and he gets signed to a big money contract. After training at Ohio Valley Wrestling, he debuts and gets the mega push, and after being in a high-profile WrestleMania match, he leaves. Away from the WWE, has an MMA career that anyone would be proud of, and wrestles for another company before he comes back. And now, let's compare him to a very similar wrestler, Brock Lesnar. Oh, is that who you thought I was talking about? They have the essentially the same credentials. They had the same background, they had the same push, they did the exact same things when they left and came back and Brock Lesnar has been booked as this unstoppable monster and Bobby Lashley got booked in an angle featuring his sisters. What does that tell you? The most frustrating part about all this is people don't notice or care. 
And as a person who loved the business so much that he got involved with it, as in being in it, it's frustrating because it's a it's something that I've loved since I was a small child and still to this day the representation leaves a lot to be desired. And finally we have Spencer Taylor, writer for ABC's Mixedish, which you can find on ABC this January as well as on Hulu. How do I feel about Kamala's gimmick? I feel like it's awful. Honestly, and I understand that there's an argument that sometimes you have to make some sacrifices in order to be the first. So in order to be the first black actor, in order to be the first black wrestler, yada yada, you have to make some sacrifices. But at the same time, I think there's something to be said for the people who look at something like that gimmick and are offered this opportunity and still say, you know what, no, because it's not worth what it's going to do to the views of my community. And that's how I feel about it. I think that it's a lot tougher when you're in that situation and you want, you know, to have this particular job and you want to be able to feed your family from this job. And I I completely empathize with that. But at the same time, seeing something like that has just implanted in the head of millions of viewers that this is okay that this is an okay stereotype, that this is an okay gimmick, that this is an okay way to dress and to think of black people. And I feel like that is incredibly problematic in the long run. And just to illustrate that point, I want to point out like John Boyega, who was in the Star Wars series recently. And basically he said that it wasn't worth it, that he felt he was used as a way to say, hey, look, we have a we have a black person in this franchise that has stereotypically been primarily white and so look what we did we're 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 doing it we're putting faces out here people of color this is important but he said that the way that he was treated and the way that his story was written in comparison to his white co-workers was so detrimental to him that he isn't even interested in continuing with the franchise and i say all that to say if you have any feelings about this or you're curious about it there's a really great movie i think called hollywood shuffle i haven't actually seen it since i was little but it it kind of stuck with me it has robert townsend in it and it's basically answering this question cinematically through like a very funny story about what's more important? Is it more important to kind of keep the dignity of your race and to not set yourself back by portraying stereotypes? Or is it more important to get this job in the immediate? And I won't ruin the ending, but I think you should watch it. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah, so my views are don't like it. Wish he hadn't done it. But Nick, we're three white guys. You don't care what we have to say about this? (laughs) Let, let me talk about Jerry Lawler's politics for a second. Um, <laughs> I love wrestling the man. I love all my conversations with the man. I will never engage in a political discussion with him because it it is uncomfortable at best. Yeah. And, you know, the, like I said, a lot of things played out on Memphis TV that doesn't age well. What? Kamala being one of them. But there is another one. There, There is one comment that you know, Nicholas, you probably saw on the Lawler Kaufman DVD that I produced. Jerry Lawler made a comment about a TV movie, a very famous TV movie, which um, I ended up seeing, and it's hugely depressing. I think I even they showed it in high school or college. It's the TV movie The Day After Tomorrow, and it's a very famous TV movie because it is a movie that I guess Reagan and I think even Gorbachev even like saw. And they were like, hey, we really can't have this Cold War go on any further. Yeah, the day after. Yeah, because it basically was discussing what it would be like the day after a nuclear 
nuclear war and just the ramifications of that it's very depressing very sad and it was basically kind of woke a lot of people up to like hey we need to back away from this cliff that we're at right now jerry the king lawler though went on memphis tv and railed that movie for being communist propaganda (laughs) 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 and said bullshit on this called bullshit on the ramifications of a nuclear holocaust And fuck the commies, and then he fought a guy who was the Russian assassin. Um, so very weird. Yeah, that just. And I'm also watching a, a documentary on the Reagans right now. So very weird. All that's at the front of my mind, and uh, the idea of you know, oh, this is fashionable in the news. We can get away with this. Yep. Go right ahead. <laughs> and yeah, the idea of representation, and I'm sure James was very happy to be making Kamala money. It's Far better than Sugar Bear Harris money. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think he could divorce himself from it. But at the same time, too, I'm sure he would probably like to be viewed at a little bit differently. I don't know. I don't know what his personal feelings on it because I don't know. I got, I got, I got, I got a weird thing about Kamala anyways. And we'll get to it when we get to it. My thing was Sugar Bear's probably, you know, not crushing it financially. And he's coming back to America where there's this unspoken rule during this time period of one African-American wrestler per territory. So it's hard as shit to get booked. And here comes Jerry Lawler rolling out the red carpet to the main event. Yeah. And also, too, not only is it white promoters, it's also other black wrestlers doing it. Like you had like Tiger Conway Jr., Rocky Johnson would openly trash other black wrestlers and say, hey, we've or- you've already got me. Why do you need other- another black wrestler here? If not say it like that, would just like, hey, you know, I hear he's a little, you know, he's funny about money, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's not he's not like I am, right. you know. like So they would were, be subverting even people of their own race because they realized the spots were so limited. So it just, it was a very tough time. So yeah, the idea like, hey, you want to main event the Mid-South Coliseum? You just had your ankle fucked up. You made very little money. You want to make all the money in the world right now? Come on. Yeah. So, And James even brings up this point. How He says, I mean, who knows? Maybe he's just covering for Lawler. But he says that Lawler asked him if James would be ashamed to do it. And James, in the shoot, he's very honest. And I believe everything. He, he's just a very upfront person. But he's just, I wasn't ashamed to do it at all. But like we all just brought up. I mean, when you get an opportunity like that, even if you might be feeling a little off about it. I mean, fuck, I think you got to go for it just for your financial situation being in the dumps. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he's like, Hey man, I grew up as a college football player. Like I just, anything <laughs> no. paid man. Like, <laughs> and just some of the coolest trivia I found, Nick brought up Idi Amin who, yeah. Mass murderer, Ugandan dictator, Forrest Whitaker impersonator. I didn't know at one point, but, uh, Antonio Inoki right around the time he was doing his Muhammad Ali stuff. Idi Amin and Antonio Inoki almost had a pro, uh, re, ma- a shit. match together. I butchered spitting that out, but they almost had a. Re- I can't remember. It was either going to be uh, worked or real deal because Idi Amin was apparently the heavyweight boxing champion of Uganda, which is just <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a dictator. Everyone else fell down. But uh, there's some pretty interesting articles on that. And in true form, Bill Watts used to talk about in commentary that Kamala was Idi Amin's ex bodyguard. Oh gosh, I love I love Antonio Noki for being a crazy old man when he was in his thirties. Like I just, he would just fight anybody, and I love that he was like, "Let's get a Russian guy, let's get a Ukrainian guy, let's get a UK guy," and I just beat the fuck out of him. I don't need him to be a wrestler. 
I just need him to beat the fucking piss out of him. That's <laughs> fucking, I love that about Anoki. That he's like, you know what? Let's bring it everybody around the world and I just beat the fuck out of him. I'll slap the shit out of him. I may win or not lose. It doesn't make a difference. Fuck them. I'll fight him. No problem. <laughs> and uh, one of the other best parts was Ali was scheduled to be the special guest referee for Abin versus Inoki. And they talked about it was going to take place in Uganda, but for safety, Ali was going to wear headgear, gloves, and a flak jacket as a referee. Well, no matter what you think of the Kamala character, there's no question that James Harris's execution of it was perfect. Damn straight. Especially during those time periods where everything was real as fuck. You were terrified. Yeah, I saw so many comments doing research on YouTube videos of just people talking about when they were kids and just like being legitimately frightened and freaked out and having to change the channel when Kamala came on the TV. Well, a lot of those vignettes, if you guys know oh, yeah. or not, were filmed in Jared's Jerry. backyard because it is sprawling and spacious. Uh, he lives above all the country singers in Nashville because uh, he makes so much money off the boys that he just he's making more money than Tanya Tucker, even though she wasn't a big star at the time. <laughs> uh, Conway Twitty, uh, all these people. He's making far more money than them, as all the old wrestlers will tell you that. Oh, no, he lived above them in Hendersonville. Yeah, I heard I heard Lawler, but then I heard it was either Jerry Jarrett's backyard too. I, I, it goes back and yeah, forth. Yeah, I think so. No, 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 Lawler lived in the city. He's got a very nice, spacious place that he brings strippers over and shows them. He's got twenty thousand dollar cash oh. hidden in a jukebox. <laughs> that jukebox. That's where he lives. <laughs> it's a story. Look it up. Decorate it with twenty five minutes of face paint. Giant Kimala with an eye made his debut in the CWA in May of nineteen eighty two with JJ Dillon as his manager, who was also making his Memphis debut. And Giant Kamala would lose to Lawler by DQ at a house show. The thing oh you gotta look up is go on YouTube and look up Kamala's first match in the studio. And you get an yeah. idea of how good Kamala was at selling that gimmick and taking the time to kind of walk around and play it like he is from Uganda. And this is brand new to him and he's discovering new things. And Lance Russell's getting freaked out because Kamala's threatening him with a spear and everybody in the front row's freaking the fuck out. The way they would take off all his uh, ceremonial garb. I mean, they he... Kamala, uh, James knew how to sell that character, and he knew understood that patience was a key to really make it intimidating. Well, and also, too, the idea of creating an aura around you and realizing that's just as, if not more important, is creating an aura and a feeling before you ever step into the ring, so that way everything you do means something. If you don't hook them right away, if you don't create that aura, that presence, if you don't get people excited as they come into the building then you haven't really done your job and that's where all the work needs to happen is before the match happens. If you think all the work happens during the match, yeah. then you're looking at professional wrestling all wrong. So uh, he'd start squashing enhancement talent at studio shows and that June he defeated Lawler for the AWA Southern Heavyweight Championship, which he held until August that year, dropping it back off to Jerry. Here's the thing that's amazing of just how good Kamala was he could go when he needed to go, like in his prime during, the, which I would consider this time in Memphis kind of like his prime. He's got a few years under his belt. He's still very young, wants to work very hard, really wants to really go for it. His first main event spot, so you're very motivated at that time to work very hard because you're making like the first real money. Also, too, you haven't gotten jaded in that spot. You haven't got used to that spot. He was working very hard, taking body slams from Jerry Lawler. I mean, just 
really there's some incredible matches of just and really just taking it to law but also taking care of him there was this weird ebb and flow to their matches and jerry's incredible inside of the ring but when he has a really great dance partner it's it's as beautiful as pro wrestling can be because Jerry can pick on what's going on in the crowd. And if you have somebody who's playing with the crowd, but has a unique character in itself and it's a formula that Lawler tried to recreate time and time again, keep in mind by this moment in time that he's wrestling Kamala, Jerry has brought in Frankenstein, uh, <laughs> monster X, whatever, <laughs> but it's always been a rip off of something else or some sort of like thing he created that looked hokey and cheesy. Or somebody was wearing a vinyl mask and it was somebody who was clumsy that didn't know how to work. Um, and the best you're going to get is maybe two or three minutes. But the idea of, you know, Kamala and then, of course, the execution from James was really what Lawler was searching for for several years, trying to get to what he got with Kamala. And then ever since Kamala, you can clearly tell that Lawler was trying to create that magic. But if you don't have somebody as talented as James, it was never going to be as good because you didn't have somebody that could create that or you could never have somebody that was willing to go as hard as him. The size of him, willing to take body slams, the ability to take body slams from him and just really go for it. I mean, it, Jerry Lawler and Kamala is something that they tried to recreate with Memphis, something that Jerry tried to recreate time and again. Much like Bowie trying to find out who he is and then hitting on Ziggy Stardust, but getting it through the Major Tom song. Like, I forget, I'm blanking on the name right now. Space Oddity, I think what it is. But you can tell that Bowie was trying to get to that. Then he got Ziggy Stardust, and then he changed from there. But it'd be like him trying to recreate that over and over again. So that's basically kind of, you can see the progression building and getting to that that he got with Kamala. And uh, what'd y'all think about Kamala's style here? Because I think it's easy to be like, all he does is splashes and weird chops. But, you know, if he went out and did Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness, <laughs> yeah. Matt wrestling, it would it would have been weird, you know? They talk about that, how James couldn't really throw a punch too good. So it kind of worked out that Kamala, Kamala would throw punches, he would throw a chop, and he would come down and chop you on the head, and it all fit his character. Yeah, to that I say, motherfucker didn't need to. Like, that's yeah. that's my official statement on that. <laughs> that always makes me think of is like, you watch uh, Stunning Steve Austin in WCW, a motherfucker could technically wrestle, but then Stone Cold, he does Luthez presses and kicks your ass in the fucking corner. I mean, it's just all yeah. about the character. Towards the end of the year, Kamala would get in a feud with Imposter Kamala too, who was Uncle Elmer, uh, Stanley uh, Frazier, uh, who was uh, who was white. Uh, <laughs> we can for sure talk about how not good this character was. Anybody listening to this, look up uh, Kamala 2 debuts in Memphis. And the moment where Lance Russell, you can recognize how Lance Russell didn't know what he was about to see. Like he didn't see it beforehand. Because the way that Lance Russell busts out laughing at Kamala <laughs> 2 and giggling like a little schoolgirl makes the fucking moment. It, it is quite a sight to see. And it is an ugly, horrible, what the fuck are they thinking sight. Yeah, it's brutal, man. <laughs> That's what they do in Memphis. They got something good, and then we got to make it as weird and dumb up. as possible. <laughs> just, just throw Jimmy Hart on it, and we'll make it fine. Oh, baby, come on out. We got Kamala 2, baby. Yes! Kamala 2, baby. Kamala 2. I got one Kamala. I got two Kamala. I got them all, baby. 
And since we're on the subject of Kamala 2s and sequels and uh, Naked Gun 33 and a third, um, in the mid-80s, there was also another Kamala 2. Uh, Botswana Beast uh, was also went by it. But then there was al- also a little person Kamala Half. And if you want a very interesting <laughs> picture, Google in uh, Kamala Half and Kamala 2, and you get all three of them in one what-the-fuck picture. Kamala said that bringing in another Kamala, who was obviously Uncle fucking Elmer, uh, kind of killed the angle. On top of that, this unbeatable monster, he was starting to get beat, so people kind of quit caring. The houses dried up, so it was time for Kamala to mosey on out of town, where he would head over to Bill Watts' Mid-South Territory in 1982. But that's the beauty of territorial wrestling. You can get something going, you run it to death, you do every type of iteration, you beat it like a dead horse, you bring in the photo negative of your gimmick and just kill it to death till there's no money left in it whatsoever. And then you're like, all right, I'm out. You go to another place and you do it all over again. And no, and everybody there in that crowd in this new place is like, oh, this is the greatest thing. I've, ne- I've never seen this before. Oh my gosh. Like, and they just go nuts over it. And you could just repeat the same stuff you did over and over again and make all the money in the world. And also too, you can go, all right, well, this didn't work in this other place. Let's make sure we don't do this. And you can have viable proof like, hey, did you hear what I did over this other territory? It killed the fucking town. Let's not do that. And like, good call. Let's do something better. You do something better. And then when you're done at that tour, you take that great thing and you repeat that there. So it keeps getting better each and each time until this man calls and goes, oh, I want to exploit you as much as possible. I heard you're a college football player. Come on in, buddy. Like, So what you're saying is that Uncle Elmer arrived to Mid-South and they're like, no, 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 no. Go, go, go back, go back, go back. In Mid-South, Kamala was managed by Skandar Akbar and Friday, uh, first portrayed by Buddy Wayne and then by Frank Dalton, and he would become part of Akbar's Devastation Inc. stable. So you got Skandar Akbar as his manager, but then Friday or later Kimchi is his handler. And this is big long run for Kamala. He's facing Junkyard Dog, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Andre the Giant. And uh, if you want a interesting Bill Watts moment, watch the Kamala versus Joe Gaines match where Bill Watts has the great call of, can't you see Kamala cooking a missionary in a big pot in ancient Africa? <sighs> Yeah. Well, let's not talk about Bill Watts politics either. Um, <laughs> also, too, I'm pretty sure Bill Watts is probably one of them Wayfair idiots as well. So, oh, like, for sure. Him and Drake Younger probably have the best conversations together because <laughs> they both found the Lord. And I will say, uh, Kamala puts over Bill Watts for all the races. Or I was going to say accusations, but I don't think that word would be appropriate. But, um,. Kamala was asked about uh, Bill's racism. He's like, uh, he might be, but I never saw it. so kamala is famously one of the guys that slammed andre pre-hogan but their first meeting in oklahoma didn't go great there was a miscommunication with a ref which made kamala go for an early cover on andre which led to andre calling kamala a dumb son of a bitch or a dumb motherfucker depending on what shoot you watch andre then got up and stiffed him 
So Kamala unloaded on the giant, backing him into the corner with a flurry of punches. The next day, Kamala confronted Andre in the dressing room. Andre apologized. And while they would never have an issue again, Kamala carried a gun in his trunks with him until Andre's death. That story always seemed a little weird to me, just because I just see this dude with a gun in his trunks bumping around the ring, and I'm like, uh, really? Is that gonna fucking work? Is that not gonna go off and kill somebody in the front row? But I actually found an old eBay auction where a guy had received some old trunks from Kamala, and he has a close-up picture of an inside little hidden pocket. It's like black and orange striped of where James could have uh, fit a little 22 in there. He could have fit a 22. He could have fit his pay that night. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, a lot of old timers carried guns on them. <laughs> like Harley Race being no different. I guess there was like a situation, I think in Memphis or, or whatever, where there was some dispute. I'm like, well, you know, maybe we could have Harley drop the title or maybe we could do a DQ or we could do this when it was a clear directive that Harley was going to go the Broadway with Waller or something. And I think this doesn't make any sense, but he did it from what I hear is Harley had this big Halliburton and it had his gun sitting around the top and he just opened up the Halliburton and slid it across the room and said, Hey, so you know, if you want to fuck with me, I got a gun right here. <laughs> so which why you would slide the gun away from you yeah, to threaten somebody. But that that's how much of a badass Harley is. He goes, <laughs> I can have this gun on the other side of the room and I will shoot you. Yeah. Like, that's how much of a badass he was. But I, I have heard stories about that. I think Ernie Ladd may have even carried a gun at mo one moment in time. I, I think I think it's a story with Ernie Ladd. We didn't bring it up in the podcast, but I, I want to say I heard a story of some sort of, like, I think it's Ernie Ladd. Is there was some sort of situation where the heat was getting so bad and, like, the, there was a near riot happening and the, the fans were coming up on the ring, and I think Ernie Ladd reached in his, in his his trunks, pulled the gun out, shot it up in the air. People <laughs> scattered, and he ran out. Like, <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> like some old timer did that because I've heard that story before and I've heard it repeated, but I definitely know that was a thing. But obviously, if you're gonna carry a gun in there, you're gonna be like, all right, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like do flying head scissors tonight, just just in case the safety <laughs> isn't yeah. on. Like that may be a good idea. So. Um, I'm sure Kamala could be like, yeah, all right, well, I'm going to give my gun match tights match, right? I take one bump and hope for the best. Uh, I, I feel like Kamala would have that ability to go, okay, you're getting my gun match tonight. Uh, I trust you. Okay. I'll leave the gun in the back. We're really going to go. I'll, I'll give you like three or four bumps, but I'm doing the gun match tonight where I'm only going to bump once. And I could see it's like, uh, is this a loaded gun match or an unloaded gun match? Because maybe you just need to pull it out and point it at him. That might be good enough. You better fucking load that thing with Andre the Giant. That's the only <laughs> way you're winning a fight with him. And even that, if it's that small of a caliber, it's probably not going to stop nah, him. You got to so... hit him in the heart if you're going for that. And uh, real quick, speaking of eBay, if anybody wants a Kamala animal print skirt signed by Kamala, they are two grand on eBay right now. So go Oof. crazy. As part of this Mid-South run, Kamala would have several matches with the Junkyard Dog, and James said that every time he stepped outside his house, he was like, Junkyard Dog bought me this house. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't find any singles matches, but one match I would recommend just for the star power and the crowd and just, wow, this is happening. There's uh, Kamala and Ted DiBiase versus JYD and Dusty Rhodes in a dog collar and bull rope match in Houston at eight twelve eighty two. if you want to look it up. You got JYD dog collared to Kamala, and then you got DiBiase bull rope to Dusty. And it's just lot, lots of selling, lots of big punches. 
everybody's going fucking buck wild in the cr- in the crowd. It's it's definitely worth checking out. In March 1983, Kamala went down to Dallas to wrestle for World Class Championship Wrestling. And this is a fun territory if you're a Kamala fan. He faced all the WCCW rags like Great Kabuki, Iceman Parsons. He'd have a Hill versus Hill feud with the Freebirds. He challenged Harley Race for the NWA yeah. title. And of course, he had the battles with the Bruiser Brody and the Von Erich boys. And uh, one thing, it's kind of like Jake talked about going from territory to territory. When he went to Mid-South, when he came to WCCW, they would give him the old Memphis Kamala vignette again. Yet again, he was Kamala, the Ugandan giant, six foot nine, 395 pounds. But everywhere he went, he would get that vignette. The one match I would have to recommend big time is Kamala versus David Von Erich. 12 10 83 this is a match you got twenty thousand people in reunion arena the selling and the punches here show how good they both were at each of those skills the crowd is going fucking ballistic and the way they're they're popping each other and railing back against the ropes and then hitting the other one with it we get both of them bleeding kamala biting david's bloody forehead the crowd going wild carrie von eric running in the ring body slamming him that's one I would definitely recommend 5,000%. Well, also, too, but World Class, the way that it was produced and filmed, ringside, like the, the cameraman yeah. like on the ring apron, being able to zoom in and get a tight shot of what Kamala was doing with his nuances. I mean, he had to play so big, but then if you put camera on that close, it comes through the television screen. You know, when I think about Kamala, I obviously think about Memphis, but when I think about video of Kamala, I think of World Class, World Class Brother, not WCCW, as you called it, Micah. Oh, do um, <laughs> Yeah, you call it, it's, know, it's World Class, brother. <laughs> it's Dallas, brother. So, like, being able to get close on a big performance, it just jumps through that screen. I just, when I vividly think of Kamala, I think of a World Class footage after I think of Memphis, or sometimes even before. So those, those memories uh, jump in my head so much. But just the way that World Class was filmed so differently for stuff at the time, even even above WWF stuff. Like, I think how Kamala was, you know, videotaped in World Class, I think was, bar none, I- incredible. I think it was the best capture of a character ever. In 1984, Vince Sr. had tried to get Kamala through Andre, wanting him to come to the Federation after Texas, but instead he went to Crockett, which he did not like. And after about a month of suffering there, he finally bit on WWF's offer, but now he was dealing with Vince Jr. as Vince Sr. had just passed away. As far as this run, he'd bring the original Friday with him, but later it would be Steve Labardi and several other people. He was also managed by Freddie Blassie. And this probably isn't the Kamala WWF run most people think of, but he'd do all the usual early WWF stuff. He'd beat up a bunch of enhancement talent. He'd work the brutal house show circuit. He'd also work with people like uh, Chief J, Brian Blair, Pat Patterson, Andre again, and he'd get title shots at Hulk Hogan. I would have to recommend uh, look up Kamala versus Jose Luis Rivera, Tuesday Night Titans, 724-84. Vince sells the fuck out of Kamala as he's coming out. It's Kamala yet again taking his time, walking out to the ring. 
But Vince's delivery and the way he just kind of builds up like, oh my gosh, can you believe this? Oh, what is, who is this man? But just the way they take their time and to build him up. And Jake, Jake fucking nailed the shit out of it. You, you set the stage before the match and then everything in the match means so much more. Watch this match and see the crowd reactions that Kamala gets just on his lifting chokehold. It's like you, you hear it all through the arena. The crowd just, oh. And then like Kamala hits his uh, big splash and it's just the crowd reactions. Because of the buildup, it shows you why you invest and you get paid off later. Watch the Kamala versus Andre the Giant steel cage match to see Andre come off the top rope into a butt splash onto Kamala. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what a trusting man. And um, there's the infamous bit on a Tuesday Night Titans episode where we are introduced to Kamala in the way that uh, it's right around his dinner time and Freddie Blassie brings him in with a chicken in a cage. And as Blassie puts it, the chicken's about to do a disappearing act. So then you get Blassie screaming the word yes over and over, and then you get Vince screaming, no, no, not on this show. And then we just get a cut from Kamala wrestling with the chicken to a comical cut of feathers all around his mouth. And I, when I, I remember hearing about this, and then I finally watched it, and I was, I was wanting a little more like Tom Savini gore special effects, but I guess the edit works fine. I don't know if you know this or not. But actually, the McMahon family owns stock in Tyson Chicken. Because every time the Wild Samoans were out, they always ate a live raw chicken, no matter what the Salmonella risk was. Uh, through all the way into like when they had the Samoan SWAT team come in, like they were always eating live raw chickens oh, poor guys. because the Vince McMahon family are tied together with the Tyson family. They're in the Illuminati and they're running <laughs> this country they because they're lizard people and they're exporting child sex slaves through Wayfair. And that's why Drake Younger is trying to take him down from inside. And that's what's going on. You heard it here today. I'm the Alex Jones of professional wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. I, I was, it was going to be a weird way to announce our sponsorship of InfoWars, but I think Jake did a pretty good job. <laughs> so Kamala's first run comes to a hard stop when he just straight up walked out. He said he was just over it. The travel, the money wasn't great either. And this is something that's going to plague all of Kamala's WWF runs and really his entire career. I think he left around November 84, which means WrestleMania 1 was just around the corner being March that next year. How much do you think Kamala could have changed that WrestleMania card and possibly, depending on how he was used, all of wrestling history? Uh, I, I would say it depends. They could have put him on WrestleMania and just would have had a squash match yeah. against SD Jones or whoever. <laughs> yeah. Or they could have put him in a feud, but then blown the feud off, and then he would have lost on WrestleMania, then he had no value going forward. So there's that. Or he, you know, I don't know, he could have been on there, had a good match with somebody, and be like, oh, there's a different thing uh, that we didn't see from Kamala. Depends on who he was wrestling. I don't know. It, it's tough to tell, but I, I would probably say over to sell it that it wouldn't have changed wrestling all that much. If anything, he probably benefited from it more because Vince probably saw him like, hey, this would be a great way to get Tito Santana over, you know? Like, <laughs> or why don't you beat the fuck out of Johnny Rods in two minutes? How about that? And it just would have been a thing. So, although it could have been Kamala could have been on Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. 
doing this character. It could have been, I think he got, did he get an LJN eventually? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not, I'm just now becoming hip to figures all of a sudden. And who had Hasbro's who had classic figures. That's becoming my new job now is now understanding figures because I now work in the retail memorabilia merchandise company now as opposed to editing videos for an online wrestling merchandise company yeah, as opposed great. to delivering rings on top of everything else that, that I do on top of it. I now have to be savvy when it comes to wrestling memorabilia and merchandise lines that existed in 1988. <laughs> so, yeah. Kamala would hop back into the territories, going back to Mid-South to wrestle Butch Reed and feud with Jim Duggan. He would make a trip back down to WCCW. He'd feud with Sergeant Slaughter and AWA. He'd even stop by St. Louis to wrestle Bruiser Brody. One match that uh, we need to bring up because it blew my mind. Uh, this was in world class. Look at me, I can learn. This is a 12-man Two ring best three out of five falls winner gets a hundred thousand dollars tag match. Jake, have you ever been a part of anything so goddamn clusterfucky? And why did this happen? Match, uh, I remember there was a company ooh, maybe like 10 years ago that did like a three or four ring <laughs> battle royal just to set a world record, right. I almost wanted to just be a part of it because it just sounded so absurd. But I definitely don't think I set a world record, though. Uh, I think it wasn't as successful as I thought. I didn't hear too much about it ever again. But I remember that being a thing. I mean, fuck. I mean, look, Eric Bischoff wasn't wrong. World War Three, right? kids. You know, hey. Just, uh, I don't want to spoil the end of this match, but uh, the winner, the specific wrestler who gets the pinfall in the fifth fall, wins a brand new Lincoln automobile courtesy of Guy, Le- Guy Lincoln uh, Guy Linton, Lincoln, Mercury, and Denton. Fucking get his name right. He paid money for that sponsorship <laughs> for now until the end of wrestling history, okay? Get that sponsor's name right, okay? We don't have any of the sponsors other than Guys Lincoln in Denton, Texas. So go down to Guys Lincoln in Denton, Texas to get the deals that'll slam your savings, not your pocketbook. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I did the retake, because, you know, he paid, and I want to give him full credit. And uh, real quick, just to hit some highlights that I really enjoyed of doing research, Nick mentioned Duggan in Mid-South. It's just on YouTube. It's a pretty basic title. Kamala versus Duggan, UWF. It's only it's a five-minute match. If you want to hear Jim Ross, the early days of when he knew how to go fucking ballistic and build it up and going bananas, Kamala and Duggan just punching each other for like three minutes and Jim Ross losing his fucking mind. Kamala coming back and Dex so Jim Duggan's coming back. Coming back strong. He's swinging. Ah! He's swinging wildly for the fences. That's if he's Reggie Jackson and playing for the Yankees. Oh my gosh, he's swinging him across the road and swallow. Big backdrop. Big backdrop. Big backdrop. Kamala. Kamala. Big splash. Kamala. Big splash. Hacksaw Jim Duggan down in the forward place, and he's coming to the right, a big clothesline, <laughs> kick out of two! You mean like that? It, 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 it wasn't that far off. And uh, just because I saw it in the uh, match history, but uh, Mid-South 1-2-85, Kamala versus George South and Rocky King. Oh, George talks about this match all the fucking time. <laughs> it's so weird that I curse just bringing up George's name. Um, He's mad at you now. George and Ro- George and Rocky did this like 
I think the kind way to put it is a ham and egger tour uh, <laughs> or an enhancement talent uh, tour. They went to multiple different, they went to multiple different territories doing jobs awesome. and George and Rocky were like excited. Like, yeah, we're going to do this territory, then this and then this spot show. And then it's going to loop around. It was like a lot of like enhancement matches and they get to mid South and they're like, Oh cool. Oh, maybe I'll wrestle Duggan or maybe they'll put us in a tag against midnight or, or whoever's there at the time, whatever. And they were kind of excited some of the getting to wrestle some of the talent because they thought it'd be a tag or two singles. And then Bill Watts was like, all right, you two are going to lose to Kamala in 30 <laughs> seconds because you guys aren't being paid by the hour. And don't forget, uh, play towards the hard camera where there's no people because there's millions of people watching. <laughs> and so they just got the shit beat out of them by Kamala in like 30 seconds. And they're quick. like, all right, here's your pay, guys. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs> You're getting the same pay regardless. Goodbye. <laughs> Jake is correct because my only note on the actual match is just, oh boy. Summer of 85, Kamala would be part of the first ever NWA Great American Bash facing Magnum TA for the United States Heavyweight Championship July 6th. Yeah, I think this is one of those matches where Kamala talks about how he refused to job to Magnum TA. So if you watch this match, it, it kind of ends abruptly or it's one of those matches where it's like the bell's ringing and you don't know why, but it, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, but Magnum was going to be the guy, man. That's like saying, hey, I don't want to lose to Hulk Hogan. Like, right, yeah, they're getting right. Magnum ready. Like, Dusty loved the fuck out of Magnum TA. And to be quite honest, there was a lot of discussion if Magnum wouldn't have got in that car accident, could it have been the thing that pushed NWA over that hump like here's our version of hulk hogan that resonates a lot more with southern crowds like the mullet mustache hairy machismo like that level of professional wrestling where hulk hogan's blonde and from venice beach california <laughs> yeah. those goddamn fucking hippies but here's a man's yeah. man that translates from texas all the way to florida to all the way up to baltimore you know just carve out that whole southern part of the united states of just machismo man down to earth gritty like there's a discussion of possibly if magnum would have been anointed as the guy could it have changed wrestling and also i'm gonna put jake on the spot here but this is a match i found that i thought was kind of interesting this was mid-atlantic because like he didn't have many matches so i thought this was cool 62684 if you want to look it up this is kamala versus brett hart but let me stress b-r-e-t-t hart and i know i know who you're talking about tell tell the tell tell everybody in radio land Barry Horowitz, yep, uh, a man who I considered a friend <laughs> until he stabbed me in the back. Um, I hope the 20 people that watch your live auctions are <laughs> oh, pleased with the job oh, that you're doing, oh. uh, Barry. But if you 20 people would like to be watching a quality program <laughs> uh, every Thursday night, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with a man who's working very hard to pronounce his S's properly from this day going forward until he has dental surgery. Um, holler at your boy. Not the man who pats himself on the back. And the only time he ever pats you on the back is when he has a knife in his hand. Oh! So. Later in 1985, Kamala made his first of several tours of Japan with All Japan Pro Wrestling. Speaking of not wanting to put guys over, things <laughs> on one of his tours, things would get dicey when he refused to put over Big Baba. And fuck, man, how do you not lose to the boss? <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. guy writing the checks. 
that was one of my like wow kamala when like he's a nice guy and he's really sweet but when he's not fucking around he's not fucking around he's he's not jobbing to baba but here's the thing He's saying, no, I'm not going to job to you, giant Baba. Well, Baba has two young boys lacing up his boot <laughs> and another one lighting his cigar. <laughs> like he's that much of a boss that he's like, you know what? I'm not going to do just the simple task of lacing my fucking boots. No, I'm going to get two young boys to do it because I have this much power. And Kamala's like, yeah, fuck all that. I'm not, I'm not jobbing you. <laughs> and, and Bob is like, do you not see the situation that I've laid out before me? I have all the power in this room right now. I have grown men that I referred to as young boys uh, <laughs> tying my shoelaces. Not just one of them, I have two of them because I want to effectively use their time because I want them to do more shit later as opposed to having one of them waste their time untying two boots. I have one on one boot and one on the other. The other one is lighting my cigar and cutting it off and putting it in my mouth and then lighting it up <laughs> because I am a comic book villain in a, in, in a sense and you are in my lair telling me you are not going to job to me. One hidden gem match I got to recommend that everybody needs to check out just because like I've, we've talked about to sell the Kamala gimmick and how scary he was and how much of a beast he could be in his prime. Look up Kamala versus Motoshi Okuma, All Japan, 8285. He comes out in all in his spear, his mask, everything. The crowd's freaked out. He beats this motherfucker down for the full three and a half minutes. This is one of those matches you, you watch it and it's a hundred percent offense from Kamala and a hundred percent that dude selling. He beats the shit out of him afterwards, and it's just the true monster, crazy, cannibal heel that Kamala was. This match exemplifies it. Back in America, Kamala would do another run for Bill Watts, this time in the UWF, but then he'd head back to WWF, working now on their established TV shows, Wrestling Challenge and Superstars, as well as getting back on that crazy house show schedule. After a couple months of uh, building him up against credible opponents like King Kong Bundy, George Still, and Tito Santana, it was time to toss him to the Monster Slayer, Hulk Hogan. Kamala would start getting world title shots on and off TV throughout the end of 86 and into early 87. Nick, in your list of people that he defeated, you left out Jack Foley, Kurt Hoffman, Nick Foley, and Nick Faley. Now, you might be wondering who all those people were, but they were all Mick Foley. Oh, he was doing the f multiple faces of Foley <laughs> even then. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, we, gotta need, we need to add those four names to Mankind, Dude Love, and Cactus Jack. But if you want to watch some Kamala uh, Foley jobber matches, they are very short, very fun. And yeah, they butcher the fuck out of Foley's name every time. And you see him react to it like, oh, c c come on, guys. Getting into early 87, Hulk would leave Kamala behind, starting his feud with the 52,000-pound Andre the Giant in front of 94 billion at the Pontiac Silverdome, brother. This left Kamala working again with George Still, King Kong Bundy. He'd even form a tag team with Wild Samoan Sika, but notably, Kamala was not on that WrestleMania 3 card. In September 87, Kamala would once again leave the company. This time, he was just sick of his pay. And this is that famous story where Hulk Hogan walks into the locker room and says to Kamala, I hope you're getting your money because I'm getting mine. And Kamala was like, wait, what? You're getting paid for this shit? <laughs> yeah. In his shoot, he said at no point in his WWF runs was he making the money he made in the territories, which is insane. He's wrestling Hulk Hogan for the world title and he's getting paid shit. 
Yeah, yeah. Like Jake said, McMahon heard about his college football career and was like, yeah, this is going to be easy. <laughs> After leaving WWF again, Kamala returned to World Class, where he feuded with Kevin Von Erich, as well as Kerry and Michael Hayes before the promotion shut its doors. He'd go back to All Japan for a run with Abdullah the Butcher, and Abdullah is maybe the only person Kamala had something horrible to say about, and it was due to Abdullah trying to gatekeep, preventing other African Americans from getting work in Japan. Yeah, when you watch Kamala's shoots and you see how nice of a guy he is and how all the words he has about anybody, so anytime he says something shitty about someone, you automatically assume they're a mass murderer or something. So it's like, oh shit, he doesn't like uh, Abdullah? Well then, damn, I don't like Abdullah. From 90 to 91, he'd do a little Lucha Libre down in Mexico. If someone has a gif of Kamala doing a tilt-a-whirl head scissors, fucking tweet it at us. Dude, uh, go go on YouTube. You can watch uh, Gigante Kamala versus Mil Mascaris in a steel cage. You only get pictures of it. But uh, just because we're digging deep on this podcast, while he was in uh, CMML, Kamala had a feud with Black Magic. Jake, putting you on the spot on that one, too. You know who Black Magic is? Norman Smiley. Because there's always room. <laughs> there's always room for Norman. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so I, I, love, I love the vignette. I love the vignettes for Norman Smiley when he was Black Magic. Like this is Black Magic. Then he's just this guy with, with a little top hat with little gloves doing a little one thing, and then they would do some weird special effects. It was real weird. <laughs> like, it's real, real fun. Uh, real I'm fun so impressed. Watch. But uh, yeah, so he'd feud with Norman Smiley's Black Magic, and just like all the territories, uh, CMML, CMLL would uh, do a Jerry Jarrett backyard vignette, and they even shot new footage for it there's there's like four different kamala vignettes but uh dig a little deep you can find an interesting one for cmml after mexico it was another all japan tour before heading back to the place where it all started for memphis which was now the uswa where he showed up and took the uswa title off eric Embry that november he traded back and forth with Jerry Lawler and Coco Beware, but by spring of 92, Kamala was back in the WWF for the run that I guess most people, at least my age, remember him from. This time, Kamala would sign a special contract with Vince, since uh, Kamala had kind of just dipped the last two times. Vince wanted to take 15% of Kamala's money and put it into a bank account, and he would give it to him as long as he finished out his run. And to show you kind of how poorly Kamala was paid here, after a two-year run, he cashed out for $17,000, which puts him somewhere around like 50 ish thousand a year, which isn't bad, especially in the early 90s. But when you're working Warrior and Hogan, they're making that in like a weekend sometimes. And yet, right around this time, uh, to get in stuff that'll come up later, is Kamala's health issues. And right around this run of WWF is when he started to notice that his feet were starting to hurt from his diabetes. And Kamala suggested that uh, he could wear sandals to help him in the ring, to help his feet. But Vince told him they weren't African enough. Oh, man. How many times that's been said in the back of WWE? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they've also said uh, you're not Asian enough before. That's something else they've said. Uh, they said that to Tracy Brooks. Oh, jeez. Wow. By May of 92, Kamala was back on our TV, uh, this time with Kimchi and manager Harvey Whippleman. 
Uh, it's the same old stuff. The house show loop. He's beating up jobbers on TV. He lost a world title shot to the Macho Man, and uh, he do a house show feud with Bret Hart, which is hilarious. It's yeah. the most technical wrestler ever against the least technical wrestler ever. That's amazing. Then finally, on his third WWF run, Kamala would have his first ever pay per view match. Yeah. Taking on The Undertaker at SummerSlam 92 at Wembley Stadium in the UK. You know what? I watched this match, and there's a spot where Kamala and Undertaker do a reverse Irish whip, and I was like, holy shit, that was a pretty solid technical move executed very well. And even watch the choke slam the Undertaker hits on big, you know, awkward Kamala, and it looks good too. They, they do some spots that I was kind of like, you know what? You guys, you guys are good. Taker almost got him up for the fucking tombstone, too. But uh, Kimchi yeah. runs in to break it up. It gets uh, Kamala DQ'd in about three and a half minutes. Afterwards, Kamala attacks Taker, splashes him from the top rope, but yeah. uh, uses the power of the urn to get right back up. And this would all set up a match for like three months later. They'd start the slow build three weeks later on uh, Superstars with Paul Bearer bringing out the casket during a Kamala match. Two weeks after that, Paul Bear would bring another one to scare Kamala. And here's a question. If he's a Ugandan tribesman, why would he know of, much less fear, a traditional Anglo-Saxon burial custom? Like, why would he know, why would he know what that box is? The only thing that I'm going to say there is uh, it, it, was, it was Kamala putting himself into the character because, as he says in the shoot, the whole time we were gearing up for the Undertaker casket match, I was really nervous because I was legitimately scared of caskets. <laughs> <laughs> In a promo leading up to it, one of my favorite new promos uh, from Harvey Whippleman, the following line occurs. The only coffin that's going to be happening is you. <coughs> While you suffocate in that casket because oh, no. you can't get out. <laughs> So following SummerSlam, Kamala would basically get used as enhancement talent, uh, losing tons of house show dates to Crush, Big Boss Man, and Ultimate Warrior. Kamala said he loved working Warrior because he was like, dude, we were in the ring for like one minute, maybe two. It was the best. (laughs) Then we get into 1992's Survivor Series, the first ever televised WWF casket match. Uh, The first ever casket match that I could find was uh, between Dusty Rhodes and Ivan Koloff. October 24th, 1980. Nick, I'm going to give you shit here so that the nerds listen to this don't give us shit, but it's a coffin match. Uh, okay. Yeah, because it's made out of wood. It's uh, uh, or it's made out of, you know, it's just stupid old uh, plywood type thing. There's a really interesting vignette where the Undertaker is building the coffin that he is planning to put Kamala in. And he drops the line to Kamala and's like, you will not survive Survivor Series. Rest in peace. And then Undertaker closes the door on the coffin that he just made, which the camera is inside the coffin to give that great shot. And as he's closing the door, the door creaks really fucking loudly. So I think it's an interesting point that the Undertaker is a really shitty fucking carpenter. He had a blueprint of a coffin. (laughs) Like he got it from fucking Ikea. Like you're... You're a professional undertaker. Just make a rectangle out <laughs> right. of fucking wood. And I was just so thrown off. It's like, dude, you just made that, and it's creaking loud enough to wake up your <laughs> your, your mom. What do you what you you shit you shitty carpenter? Uh, I'll talk about his shitty craftsmanship here in a second. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the thing too is he, like, my whole career has been based on setting up interview sets in hotel rooms, and 
Ethan Page was going to record one of his Egos Amigos, yeah. and Caleb Conley was there and brought the equipment at a t- at an Impact taping, and neither one of them knew how to set an uh, <laughs> interview set up. So they FaceTimed me, and I wow. stepped them through it step by step wow. by step by step, because I, I had the blueprints in my head, unlike old Mark Calloway <laughs> in building a fucking coffin when he is the Undertaker. <laughs> My other gimmick name would be the camera guy, Jake Manning, because I know how to set up an interview set in hotel room step by step by step because I've been doing it for decades. But clearly, old Mark couldn't figure out how to build a coffin without a set of directions. So uh, Undertaker wins this match. He hits him with his urn and then he pins him and then puts him yeah, in the it's so thing. Stupid. I was like, what? The bell even rings. Like, it's. it's... <laughs> yeah. And then Undertaker straight up exposes the business by being, <laughs> quite frankly, the worst ever at hammering nails. I can hammer a nail better than the Undertaker. Oh, yeah. It's very awkward because there's that moment when you're watching it where it's like, oh, we're, we're going to do the whole coffin here. Yeah. We're going to hammer each one. This is a extended moment we're having. Uh, all right. Well, those gloves he's wearing are very tricky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a guy who's worked construction in Iowa during December, outdoors, roofing because the job got delayed and delayed and delayed, it is very tough to hammer a nail when you have gloves on and like leather purple gloves <laughs> makes it even diffi- more difficult and uh just one thing i kind of missed when we we're do- going into this but to give kamala props for his acting the way kamala yeah. would sell his fear during this undertaker feud was fucking fantastic the small bits that i remember as a kid of just seeing how terrified kamala was of the undertaker in that coffin slash gasket he the motherfucker knew how to make the moments really connect to the audience watching because he was just freaked the fuck out he was so good at it now quite literally buried it was time for a change and in january 93 kimchi and whoopleman started being mean to kamala this led to him breaking away from him he get uh up with reverend slick and become a face for the first time in his career as the Ugandan giant. And they'd uh, hit him with a few vignettes of him bowling and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> the, the best moment of the dumb bowling vignette is at the end when Kamala finally gets his strike and Slick Kamala and Lord Alfred Hayes all jump up and down in celebration. It's fun, fun stuff. From here, creative has nothing for you, brother. It was mostly working house shows against ex-manager Kim Chi, who I assume was Lombardi. We'd have the occasional TV spot to beat up a job guy, and he'd make a handful of raw dates, usually losing to people like uh, Doink or Yokozuna. Right now is what I got to recommend the most out of all of Kamala's matches. My favorite fucking Kamala match is Kamala versus Bret Hart for the Intercontinental title, 1-3-93. They give Kamala time to have a normal match against a worthy opponent. Hold for hold, back and forth. All of Kamala's moves look fucking devastating and gorgeous because Brett's selling for him. Even Kamala's weird boob hold that he would do throughout his career, Brett's really selling for it. And if you want to see something interesting, watch this match because you get to see Bret Hart give Kamala a monkey flip. Then, shades of the Buddy Landell episode, we get a random HBK match, uh, June 28th, 1993. And I want everyone to know that we got Kamala versus Shawn Michaels instead of eddie versus Shawn michaels i want everyone to let, just let that sink in oh uh, 
and I just I just want to put another argument uh point out there. Brett versus Kamala is better than Kamala oh, versus shit, Sean. Jake. I know, I know. Go <laughs> fuck yourself with the random rolled up things you have on the bed behind you, Micah. That is only a bit directly to you because that's an insult directly to you. Because you have these I don't know what you have rolled up behind you posters. every single it's time tons you, of do posters. It. you have you have movie posters on top of a bed and it's like six foot high movie posters on top of a bed behind you. <laughs> Nobody can use that bed whatsoever. No. I why do you have a bed in your house that you cannot use? That is absurd. Uh, apparently Micah is bed rich. Uh, he needs to be bedridden because he is delusional because he thinks that Bret Hart is a better wrestler than Shawn Michaels. Man, that was a long trip to get to that end, but I really enjoyed it. Um, one thing I want to put over the very beginning where you get to see Kamala, he's now a face and he's, he's kind of playing more to the, uh, the scared, apprehensive fish out of water and the way Kamala walks to the ring and he gives high fives to all the kids at ringside where he's kind of, he's very cautiously sticking his hand out in a way, getting small <laughs> little high fives and he's reacting to each one. It's so fucking sweet and adorable. And it it shows how well he could adapt to character work and it's like all right i'm a face now i will be endearing and cool and just connect to these children and it's his eye acting is brilliant and this is another one when it's not fear like it was with the undertaker but it's just connecting with the kids in this match kamala does one of my favorite kamala spots where he goes for the splash and he hits Shawn michaels and he goes to hook the leg but he was on his <laughs> stomach so he couldn't pin him i love that shit 100 percent of the time Kamala ends up getting a super kick in the back of the head while he's distracted by Diesel. After the match, he's jumped by Nash. And if Macho Man's research is correct, this is the first time Kevin Nash had ever attacked anyone in the WWF. And also, according to Savage, I love it when he pats his belly. <laughs> <laughs> He, uh-huh. he also said he also said the same thing about Hogan. I love when he pats his belly. I love a little pat on the belly. You like rub him on the top of the bald head right there, brother. Because he's all bald on the top right there. You pat him on the top of the head, and all of a sudden he starts patting his belly, and he's like, oh, you're such a good boy, Hulk Hogan. Oh, Hulk, sir, you're such a good boy. Oh, you're such a good boy. You show me your belly. Oh, oh you're not going to do anything racist on a sex tape, all you brother. Oh, that's right. You're such a good little boy. You're such a good little boy. Oh, I love it, brother. Shortly after this, Kamala was scheduled to face Bam Bam Bigelow at WrestleMania 9 in the middle of the desert with sun and horribleness and bad ideas aplenty. But that match, match was totally scheduled. It was ready to go. Nobody got injured. But the match got cut for time. I think Pritchard talks about this, but it just needs to be said. They cut the match so that Hogan would have more time to pose and celebrate after the Yokozuna <laughs> win. And if you, yep, that's fucked up. But uh, if it's not on the network, because I couldn't find it, but on the Coliseum VHS release, they uh, make up for this or give a small compromise by Kamala having a short sketch where he talks to an elephant and an alpaca. And at the bottom of it, it talks about Kamala hanging out with his fellow countrymen. Oh, so no. we're just, yeah, we're just hitting a little racist spots every here and there and just trying to point those out. Then things took a a dark turn for Mr. James Harris in July of 93. He was called away from a WWF tour when his youngest sister and her daughter were shot and killed by the dad. 
the killer tried to commit suicide, but instead he survived and severely disfigured himself. And he would later get life and die in prison in 2013. <sighs> Just a brutal Fuck. fucking story, man. I don't want to say two plus two equals four here, but as part yeah. of this, James called Vince and Linda answered. And she gave him the go ahead to obviously the obvious go ahead to go spend time with his family during this. But when he returned, he was let go. I'm not saying those two things are, are, are two plus two equals four, but he had lost his sister, his niece and his job in a matter of weeks. Again, 2020 podcast. I'm going to refrain from something that's uh high spots business related uh, right now, but <laughs> let's, let this let's, let's uh, dog ear this and then come back to this at uh, a later date. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, We'll see how the next several months go. How about that? Right. Oh, that's interesting. So after his WWF release that August, Kamala was just dejected with the wrestling business, so he kind of quit. Uh, he had bought some dump trucks with his money, and he used that to get some work, and he also started making sweet, sweet, sweet music. <laughs> yes, he did. He'd write over 100 songs. He'd release an oh, album. The Best of Kamala, Volume 1, through his website. And uh, he didn't have a bad voice, but it was very much that, like, baritone, I'm just talking and singing to you. If you go on YouTube, it's his full Best of album. It's like 46 minutes. I listened to it all last night. If I had to describe it, it's probably, I'm not the smartest music guy, so music nerds, please don't crucify me. But it's kind of like a blues version of, like, Daniel Johnston and uh, Wesley Willis mixed with wrestling experience <laughs> there's a couple songs in it that fucking crush me he's so heartfelt and he's so just laying his soul out for everyone to see it's endearing and it, it has that kind of, that daniel johnson weird broken beat makeshift quality to it that really makes it all the more endearing it's it's touching as fuck i would recommend kamala's music five thousand percent so while he did take a handful of paydays from shows in India and Memphis, which is, couldn't be two more different places, we wouldn't see the big guy back in the square circle until 1995. Hulk Hogan was handing out spots in WCW, and that led to Kamala coming in to join Kevin Sullivan's Dungeon of Doom stable after Sullivan drank from the Goblet of Darkness. <laughs> this fucking accent. And as Nick brought up in a uh, Ten Bell Pod tweet, uh, you should get high and watch every Dungeon of Dune segment for sure. <laughs> About a month of crushing cans on TV, he'd have his first WCW pay-per-view appearance where he defeated Hacksaw Jim Duggan at Bash at the Beach 95. And there were at least 12 moments during this match where I just went, fucking Miles Kane, god damn it. <laughs> Hey, you got to give it up to this bash at the beach because it's literally on the beach. It's, I think it's the only one. I can't remember. I think it is the only one. But, you know, for once, they actually followed through on what they said. It's also uh, a discussion of an episode of How Did This Get Book. Go check that out. That podcast I used to do uh, <laughs> that is folded up and uh, uh, put into the closet for the time being. But that's just temporarily on hold. Listen, motherfuckers, I'm just asking. My, my, my participation in this podcast is teetering <laughs> day by fucking day. If you want me to start How Did This Get Booked Back Up, I can only do one fucking I can barely do this fucking podcast, okay? Like, I have at least eight more things I have to do in the 20 minutes that I have when we stop recording till the time I go to fucking work on top of other shit after that. Like, I'm going to go do something personal. 
this Saturday evening and then go back to work because we are recording this Black Friday weekend. So this was a mistake, but <laughs> I wanted a fucking day off, which turned into a day of me wrestling. So just be fucking thankful that we have this before we start requesting How Did This Get Booked? I know th there are two or three people like, I miss How Did This Get Booked? Well, um, you need to miss Jake Manning more because <laughs> he misses his free time. He misses his time to think and he gives it up every single time for 10 Bell Pod. But anyways, once you go back and check out How Did This Get Booked? It still exists for the time being. I'm about ready to uh, put it in the closet forever very soon. And I'm pretty happy with those shows. They were a lot of fun. Yeah, they day. were. Following the bash at the beach, Kamala did a lot of house show jobs before the whole reason he was there, being part of the Dungeon of Doom take on the Hulkamaniacs at Fall Brawl 95. Uh, we just talked about this match with The Shark, John Tenta. Hogan tapped Zodiac with the camel clutch. The only thing that really stood out to me when I was focusing on Kamala is when Hogan finally gets in the ring, he immediately throws powder into Kamala's fucking eyes <laughs> like the most dastardly heel he can be. <laughs> that dirty, cheating fuck Hulk Hogan. So Kamala wasn't paid well in WCW, also wasn't treated the best. He said that Eric Bischoff never even bothered to speak to him the entire time he was there. Yeah. Uh, they wanted him to lose to Macho Man on the way out, but after being treated so poorly, he just chose to fucking leave after the fall brawl match. Well, what do you expect? Eric Bischoff is in control of WCW, and then Hulk's like, you know what, brother? We really need Kamala in here, because, you know, Hulks are need somebody to beat. And, like, Eric Bischoff, when discussed on whether or not to say Kamala, he was like, fine. Like, that's how it went. It wasn't like, we need to get him. It was like, fine. <laughs> do we did what we need to do. I kind of I want to get uh, Otani in to wrestle for the Cruiserweight title against Chris Backstreet. Oh, by the way, the name that just got bleeped right there was Chris. 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 So I hope you enjoyed whatever name I was just saying right there, because we needed to have more Mr. JL versus Sabu matches. That's what he wanted. Okay. After WCW, Kamala headed back to USWA for a one-nighter on January 24th, 96, teaming with Brian Christopher and PG-13 to defeat Tracy Smothers, Doug Gilbert, Jesse James Armstrong, Robert Gibson in an Iron Man match. Holy fuck, that sounds ins insane. And uh, after that, Kamala was pretty much done with wrestling from what I could find. Uh, he wouldn't work again till 2001's WrestleMania 17's gimmick Battle Royal. And it's crazy to think that this was his first ever WrestleMania. Yeah, it's so sad that his first one had to be in reflection of all his work rather than rather than celebrating a past cool WrestleMania moment that he already had. Kamala tosses out Earthquake, Kim Chi, Doink, One Man Gang before getting eliminated by Sergeant Slaughter, and then Shiki fucking wins. Also, sorry I missed this one. Uh, if you want to go back and watch ECW Anarchy Rules, you get to see Joel Gertner versus Cyrus, where Joel Gertner rips off his vest to show a Kamala belly, where he pats his belly and later defeats Cyrus. But there's a little uh, Kamala love in the ECW pay-per-view. Off that nostalgic match, he'd start hitting some nostalgic-based indie show appearances. He'd spend 2002 through 2005 sporadically taking on names like Jerry Lawler, Dusty Rhodes, Jim Duggan, resurfacing on WWE TV from time to time. And Kamala said, aside from a, a $2,000 payday, most of these spots, he was getting paid like extra talent. He'd have 2005 SmackDown match against Randy Orton, and it's kind of fun. Randy, like, sells his dick off for Kamala. I was, I thought, I thought <laughs> he it was does. good. 
one that I would like to point out, uh, there's a weird sketch where a diva finalist in 2004 had to seduce the mystery person behind a curtain. And guess who it was? It's Kamala. <laughs> and you get about, I think it's like 10 divas at the time trying to seduce Kamala as he moans and groans and does his shtick. It's a, it's a cringe mixed with good for Kamala, at least getting paid. Let me let me correct you, Micah. Yeah. It was nine divas spending half the time trying to figure out who Kamala is, <laughs> uh, and then the other twenty five percent of the time seducing them. That's, That's, right. uh, That's really where the cringeworthiness was. Yeah. If you rewatch that, you can clearly tell who was a wrestling fan before yeah. they got this gig and who was not. Yep, it's a good. Um, although I think I think Maria Canellis was in this, and I don't think she knew who Kamala was, but. I feel like she just kind of went with it the best she possibly could. And I think she's a real asset to professional wrestling. So you can't, uh, just because you don't know who Kamala is, doesn't mean that you should be uh, ostracized. Even though Josh, our new graphics guy, didn't know who the Boogeyman and Brad Armstrong no. were, I'm slowly teaching him over time. Oh, and you, you, you didn't fire him on the spot? I tried to. Uh, I was overruled. Uh. So the Ugandan giant wasn't quite done yet. He'd have one more WWE appearance, June 2606, taking on Umaga, losing in a squash match. And then it was on the road working the indie circuit. Couple notable things he did on the indie circuit. He did a Magnum TA tribute show, which is weird because Magnum TA is still alive. Uh, and he'd also <laughs> face Brian Danielson, September 30th, 2006. And this was a match in Liberty States Wrestling, which uh, Jake can hit me because I didn't look up where that was. But uh, if, you, if, you, if you're a huge Kamala fan, please watch this match. And if you're a Brian Danielson fan, please watch this match because Brian does everything for Kamala. Because like Jake mentioned with the Diva thing, you can tell he's a wrestling fan. He loves what this motherfucker did coming up. And he puts, himself, he puts Kamala over huge. The match is fun as shit. Well, here's the thing. So, as you said, it's for Liberty States. It was in front of 40 people. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, this was the very early days of Ring of Honor. And Brian Danielson is the Ring of Honor champion. And he's taking bookings, and he gets a booking against Kamala. Now, pre-Twitter, the discussion you would see about professional wrestling on Twitter happened on this thing called message boards. <laughs> so, there'd be advertisement for shows and click around, and all of a sudden there was an advertisement that popped up, and I saw this kind of happen on the message boards myself. Much like you see things happen on Twitter and you get the full story of it, yeah. I saw this happen on a message board. I don't know which one specifically. Right? And they might have been reporting from different boards because sometimes that happened. So, this match with Danielson gets announced. Somebody then says, man, this would be awesome if it was for the Ring of Honor World <laughs> Heavyweight title. Gabe Sapolsky, who was the current booker of Ring of Honor at the time, was like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> I think that's the only cool thing Gabe ever did in his entire booking <laughs> career was like, you know what? Oh. I'm going to allow Brian Danielson to defend the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight title at a non-Ring of Honor show against fucking Kamala. <laughs> and he did it because he is a big Mid-South fan, as you can tell by the design of the old Ring of Honor title. Ah. It is basically just a ripoff of the UWF title. So obviously being a fan of Kamala and respect and doing that. So Gabe Sapolsky did that for Kamala. Kamala had this amazing match with Brian Danielson. And obviously there was this discussion. Brian gets it. Kamala like is got it. And they did what they did. Did. And it was a fantastic match. So fantastic, in fact, that when I was booked against Kamala, 
at the NWA Fan Fest, I was excited. <laughs> and boy, were my hopes and dreams dashed oh. fucking immediately. Oh. That Kamala that wrestled Brian Danielson didn't want to do any of that. <laughs> like, and I was willing to sell for him forever. I was willing to sell for him for 10 minutes, get a couple punches, do this. Oh, no, no, no. Kamala just wanted to give me a couple of chops, whip me in, splash, that's it. Mm. Made that very fucking clear to me. When I suggest anything else, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, what, what? How about this? How about uh, this? And it was all like stuff like Kamala stand in the middle of the ring and I run to you and you knock me right. down. He didn't want to even fucking do that. <laughs> you also had the element of Skandar Akbar, who I fucking love to fucking death. What an amazing human being. Everybody There's does. not enough love for Skandar Akbar. He was managing Kamala, so there's this big moment here, and this is going to be great. Now, Skandar, I, I love him, but he he doesn't... There's this thing in professional wrestling. There's toxic fandom. There's also this toxic thing that exists in the South, and much, very much at the NWA Fan Fest, where if you wrestled in the 80s, you can do no wrong. And anybody who did not wrestle in the 80s, you were a spot monkey. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. Fuck off. Go eat a dick. Basically, whatever energy Jim Cornette puts yeah. out into the fucking world, imagine if that manifest into people who are about 40 years old that party at the bar all night long thinking they're a member of the Four Horsemen <laughs> who did not buy into the Horseman raffle, by the way. All of these people just want to see Kamala and Skandar and cheer everything they fucking do. So... Uh, when we're in the back putting this together and I was getting blocked on every suggestion that I made to Kamala and just seemed disinterested. He didn't want to put his fucking gear on. He was mad because the locker room was so far away Aww. from where we had to go, go to Aww. because it was either changing this room or changing the hallway, which nobody wanted to fucking do. But he just was like, so just fucking over, just even walking to the fucking curtain to have his, this fucking match. Like that's, how little he wanted to fucking do. Skandar was like, well, I'm the best heel in the business. I'll cut a heel promo and turn the whole crowd against us. And I go, and I tried to explain to Skandar, I go, no, these people bought a ticket because you were a part of their childhood. You were a bad guy then, but they're going to love you to death. And Skandar was like, no, I'll show him. I'll show him. And I love <laughs> Skandar for having that belief that he's such a craftsman in believing that he can get heat whenever he can. I, I appreciate that faith in your fucking work. But before the match, Skandar grabbed the microphone intent to turn this entire crowd to hype up how much of a monster Kamala is and get people in my corner and believe me as a babyface, only to get dashed because Kamala don't want to do shit. So Skandar cuts a scathing promo as if it's 1986. <laughs> it is Fucking incredible. Skandar just unbelievable in the performance he gave. And then as soon as he put the microphone down, waiting for the chorus of fucking booze, everybody gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> Clapped and fucking just gave him all the fucking love in the world. Could have ran for fucking mayor of this fucking fan fest and clearly was a baby face. Nobody gives a fuck about me. And I'm like, well, right. I'm glad he's Kamala's just beating me shit in 30 seconds. Here we fucking go. Um, this was also the time that I was kind of a part of, I guess the best way to put it is this mentorship program that Greg price started 
that had Tully Blanchard basically working with me and a bunch of the guys every Sunday. Like, keep in mind, I received training from Tully Blanchard for like two or three months. Like, every Sunday, that man was talking to us, tutoring us two or three hours at a fucking time. And part of the reason I'm as half a good of a wrestler as I am is because of those conversations with Tully Blanchard. And Greg Price was running these shows and was going to pick these guys out and put them on these shows. And he ran some shows with some moderate uh, financial success, if not bad success, just because of just some of the parameters of the situation. And kind of one of the big culminations was the FanFest shows. And Greg hated my gimmick, but I refused to budge on it. But I was still going to have the match. I was still going to wrestle as the Man Scout. But Tully was fine with it. Tully liked it. Tully got it. He was cool with the Man Scout. It's always giving me praise for the, for the character. When he put me against Kamala and saw how difficult it was to get anything going with it, Tully walked up to me and said, I just want to apologize to you for everything. (laughs) (laughs) It was so nice. And, and also to Tully was like, I'm sorry you had to go through that. That, that was uncalled for. I do apologize. And Les Thatcher even said, you know, he goes, Hey, I'm sorry about that. And I go, Hey Les, uh, when you were in commentary during that match, I know it was very short, but did you hear, hear the sound that was coming from the ring? And he goes, what's that? And he goes, the sound of a toilet bowl flushing. Cause that was my fucking career. Oh. Like just going down oh. because I just like, instead of getting heat up on me and feel sorry that this happened to me, they're like, yes, we love Skandar, Akbar and Kamala. <laughs> Fuck the man scout. He's a piece of shit. Fuck him for having character in professional wrestling. So that's kind of my interactions with Kamala. Um, also, too, I was on a Ted DiBiase church show with him, and he could not be bothered to pay attention to where the entranceway was. So he's like, yeah, I'm not I'm not walking through the entrance. Fuck this. And just <laughs> walk to the fucking ring through the pipe and drape like over here. And like everybody was freaking out. Like, why did he come out this way? And he's just walking through the crowd like, I don't give a shit. Walks in the ring, beats somebody up for 30 seconds and walks to the back. Like, and like everybody was freaking out. But George loved it. He goes, he's a savage. He's not supposed to come out through the entranceway. <laughs> so um, also to... I worked with Russell Reunion and Russell Khan and worked for High Spots. And we always worked with Sal Corrente a lot with Russell Reunion because it was kind of his thing. So there'd be times where like, hey, let's put up a, a list of people and Sal Corrente would always be like, we got to book this person, this person, this person. And coincidentally, they're all Sal's friends. So, you know, Kamala is one of Sal Corrente's friends. So we book Kamala and uh, most of the guys are like, yeah, sure, Sal, come in. It's it's usually overpriced, but they'll sign whatever we put in front of them. They're usually good with the, the people. They are a little bit of a headache sometimes, but we didn't have to deal with a lot of those headaches. Sal deals with a lot of headaches, so it's like the extra money is kind of worth it because it's just like, Sal, go book a bunch of your friends. Here's the money. Oh, that's a little more expensive we pay, but oh, well, we at least know they're going to show up. But Kamala, when he was booked, demanded a deposit that was larger than 50%, like basically almost his entire fucking payday. He wanted it up front. And I get with his history, you would feel that you've been screwed over by promoters. And yes, his, like I said, like most of the guys' paydays, you know, the Bob Ortons and the and B. Brian Blairs that were on the show, yes, we're, we're overpaying, but at the same time, too, we're, we're fine with it. But if that makes you feel comfortable and you're going to have good interactions with the fans. So went ahead and just paid it, and uh, Kamala just decided to not get on the plane. Just straight up was like, nah, I got your money. Fuck you. (laughs) 
came came up with some excuse later though. So I'm like, okay, well that that happens. So we have this is when we are running a lot of wrestle reunions. So we're like, hey, we've got another one coming up. Why don't you just go ahead and make it, take that deposit, move it here. Sorry that that happened to you because you situations do come up and we do apologize. And probably getting to a phone was a big issue. So here's another date. Advertise again. Just said fuck you. I'm not coming. Oh boy. Michael Elliott, who edits a lot of our documentaries, wanted to get Kamala on tape talking about. You know, just a lineage of stuff for possible projects was willing to drive to his house because new health was an issue. Like, hey, we'll come to your house. Also, too. We got some pictures, some action figures. Let's go to your house, sign your name, talk about your career a little bit. And we're going to put a whole bunch of money in your pocket. Actually, we're going to give you a little bit more than normal because, you know, money's tough. Got health issues. We understand that. We recognize that. And, you know, we don't want to, you know, we want to pay you fair value for this, much like we've done with thousands of wrestlers over the time. But we're going to bend over backwards for you because health is a concern. We're going to give you thousands, you know, of dollars and, you know, money is very tight. So, and we're going to make this as easy as possible on you. You can literally just sit in a chair and we will do everything around you. Um, He told us, fuck off. Um, (laughs) That's... That's the interactions that I got with Kamala. And I had a very lengthy discussion very recently about our fabulous Moolah episode. Uh, where, uh, <laughs> oh, really? You guys, uh, you, you, were, you, were, you were called out on a couple of things. It was actually the guy that you saw from Dark Side of the Ring, Nigel Sherrard, the guy who's who stand-up for Moolah thing. Yeah. Him and I had a dialogue about Moolah. And um, as I've learned that people are listening to this podcast, especially people that are uh, close family members, uh, I'm waiting for Vader's son to call me out on Twitter one of these days. But as I've stated from the beginning when we started this podcast, um, I will be nothing but fair. And I will tell you the good and the bad. And I feel like I've presented enough of the good with Kamala. And uh, here is the part that we would label under bad. So now that I have said all that and I've contained it specifically in this particular part right here, I will divorce myself from it. So when I knew we were doing this episode, I wanted to solely contain it in this particular (laughs) spot as the bad part about Kamala. Because all I've known is a guy who basically had no interest in doing anything for me, had no interest in doing any type of business whatsoever with a company that was trying to treat him as fairly as possible. If anything else, bend over backwards to put money in his pocket because realized he was in a tough spot. So I will put all of that in this spot right here. And this is labeled the bad <laughs> stuff I know about Kamala. And I will go back to talking about the good stuff. So, but if you want a fair picture of professional wrestlers, you come to 10 bell pod because I will be nothing but fair with you when you pass. And I expect the same. I expect you to talk about all the shitty fucking things I did in my fucking life. I am prepared for it. And if you're going to be like, fuck you, Jake, man, and you shouldn't talk about a wrestling legend like that. You're a fucking nobody. Yes, I will agree with you. But (laughs) these things fucking happened. I have an impeccable memory. I remember all of the good stuff and I will remember all of the bad stuff. And that is what this podcast is about is sharing that stuff. So you get the most full fledged picture of anybody who you watched on television. Cause I, as the low man on the totem pole of professional wrestling, I know where all the bodies are buried. So <laughs> let that be known and record as fact. This is the bad part of Kamala. And I am done with that. And let us go on with our discussion of Kamala in a much more positive tone. 
I'm just curious, was, uh, did Nigel, this conversation with Nigel, did it involve him trying to suggest that Fabulous Moolah should have been on the Supreme Court as much as he's sucking her dick? <laughs> no, he did, he did agree with a lot of points that I had. So he's, he goes, I appreciate you stick up for her. But then he heard the end and uh, <laughs> he was like, I take it all back. <laughs> so uh, he recognizes the harm that she possibly could have done. Yeah. Uh, well, wait, but I you don't he, see that he, online. You don't see that online anywhere. Yes. So uh, I think there may be a project where we have a fair discussion about the, the end of what we discussed in the Fabulous Moolah episode. Yeah. But uh, that's a conversation I would like to have is whether she was good or bad for female professional wrestling, because I, I go teeter on that multiple fucking times. But that is the messy part about history. Yeah, totally. Is that it is not 100%. And controversial figures are even as murky as that. And even just non-controversial figures like Kamala, yeah. pretty well like, dude, still murky in my opinion. No, it makes a hundred, it's a hundred percent true. Cause in the same way that I couldn't trust Nigel's opinion on anything about Mula because he would defend everything that she was accused of in a way that's like almost a political pundit de- defensive way. So the way you're talking about to give the bad and the good on Kamala shows that you that your word is trusted more in the way that Nigel's defending everything is like I can't fucking trust anything he's saying. So I had a different discussion. He he definitely copped to a couple of All things. Right. So especially when I presented some facts. <laughs> so oh facts, what the fuck are they these days? I'll put uh, a button on that by saying, as Nick Alexander, I would like to say. Fuck Fabulous Mula and fuck you, Nigel, for defending her. <laughs> so there we go. But uh, you can both uh, go suck an egg, as, as they'd say back in the day. All right. So by 2011, Kamala was out of the business as his diabetes were catching up to him hard. He would start getting sores on his left foot that wouldn't heal up. They ended up having to take his toes, then his foot. Then they'd have to go all the way up to below his knee on his left leg. By November 2011, April 2012, basically the same thing happened on his right leg. He get he get amputated uh, right below the knee, and uh, man, it's pretty crazy shit to have to go through that. If you want to get an idea, watch the Hannibal TV shoot interview because Kamala really bears a soul and gets into all that and takes you blow by blow of how that went. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, and it's not not diabetes related, but. Uh... Melissa Coates is going through that right now, and I think she has a GoFundMe right now. And you know, people you can, you can think what you want of Melissa Coates, but she's she's been a part of this wrestling community for quite a long time. And I, I know whatever money that you could give to her GoFundMe would be much appreciated. Going through a tough time, she just lost a limb, so I, I empathize with that. Especially any woman that went through wrestling in the time period that she went through um, during the diva search, bikini model, fucking hirings, and just trying to be some sort of entity or some type of wrestler, whether you yourself were a fitness competitor and now a pro wrestler. Regardless, that was a fucking tough time for fucking women in wrestling, and whatever you could give to that, go ahead. Uh, unfortunately, we can't give anything to Kamala specifically right now. I mean, you could to his family, but when somebody's directly hurting like that, give to it. So if you gave a little bit to Kamala for his hard times, could, yeah, maybe give to Melissa Coates as well. I, I'm going to be doing the same very soon. Now confined to a wheelchair, James Harris would have to, you know, cope with it, and he did. He ended up, uh, I think, 
accepting it and he he was positive about it. He'd spend all his time doing woodwork. He'd spent time with his grandkids. He started writing his autobiography called Kamala Speaks. It's uh, not a WWE book, so I assume if you buy it, at least some of it would go to his family. That's just a educated guess. In 2017, he had a pretty big health scare, having to have a life-saving uh, surgery to clear fluid from around his heart. And then we get to the godforsaken year, 2020. In August, Kamala got COVID, ah. and that mixed with the diabetes, mixed with the heart problems. It was just too much. And he went into cardiac arrest August 9th, 2020, and later passed away at the age of 70 years old. <sighs> so, final thoughts on Kamala. Well, as I said before, uh, Tempo Pod is about being as fair as possible. And uh, I've already discussed some of the more negative parts of Kamala. And as I said, I'm not going to do that again. So, I will say this. There have been a multitude of people, whenever he would fall ill or, or go through a bout of uh, difficulty... There'd always be people like Chris Hero that'd be at the forefront of looking after Kamala. Here's a GoFundMe. Here's a, a t-shirt. All the money goes to Kamala from Pro Wrestling Tees. There would always be these multitude of people that would step up and be like, we need to do something for Kamala. Now, my interactions with Kamala would never cause me to step up and do something like that. But obviously, he has had interactions with certain individuals that has caused them to put out the rally cry to to help Kamala and I think that just speaks of who he was as a person and the idea of hey you know I, this character is is very problematic but I make money off of it and being able to divorce himself from it and be able to provide for his family uh, the way that he did is commendable any man that does that should be commended and and look out for his loved ones uh go about make make the money regardless if it's like uh very problematic or issues but for somebody to step up and say i'm gonna push all this uncomfortableness aside and make money because i have to for my family for my loved ones anybody that has to make a tough decision like that should be commanded and exalted and kamala was one of those people one thing that Kamala said is that he, he doesn't consider himself a great worker, but he did consider himself a great gimmick. And racial issues aside, if you could separate it, I think that's pretty spot on. It's a gimmick that's never going to be forgotten about. And in, in the time period where shit was real, he was real as fuck with this absurd gimmick. Like he made it work. I'll say it again. The gimmick itself, problematic. The execution of the problematic gimmick, fucking amazing. Like he, he really crushed that shit. Uh, of course, he did a lot of the similar beats and similar matches over and over and over, but he was able to do things within the confines of his gimmick, and he did them well, and, I, you know, that's I think that's solid. Underappreciated good seller. Like, he was when it came time for Kamala to sell, he, he did a good job. In fact, the spot where the big guy's about to fall over and he's shaking his arms, and is he going <laughs> to go down? Uh, he's he's on my Rushmore. Andre, Earthquake, Yokozuna, Kamala. That's that's top four of that spot. <laughs> yes, yeah. And man, just he grew up in ass backwards Mississippi in a poor family, and he was able to pull himself out of that and travel around the world, see the world, make money. He he worked some of the biggest names in the business. I mean, I think that's a pretty damn cool life. Uh, he made his mark on the sport. Pretty unforgettable pretty goddamn memorable 
There was the one line that the RF video guys did pretty good. My next question for you is, you mean that was the line? Sorry. i sorry. We don't interrupt with final thoughts, but if you're going to fucking talk about the competitor, you're going to get a reply. Sorry, Jake. I, I was about to ask that. It was, did you ever want to wrestle like a 30 or 60 minute match without the gimmick? And Kamala's response was no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that that said it all. In a way that's kind of like 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 Nick kind of talked about and we've discussed. He watched wrestling growing up, but he wasn't a huge fan. He wasn't, you know, this wasn't built into him. I, I mean, I admittedly, I love those dudes that love wrestling and they show the passion and they create those matches that make you remember them on your deathbed. But then you also need to remember there is the side of the guys who are just trying to make a living. They had the right look. They had the right builds. Their life presented themselves with an opportunity, and they went for it. And I fuck, how can you not understand that? How can you not see that? Yeah, that's life is fucking tough. Sometimes you don't find your favorite passion in life to make yourself an artist, making all the money. Sometimes you just get by, and it works out. And that's what that quote kind of nailed for me. Um, if any huge Kamala fans out there, which like I, th I think I've kind of mentioned, but just there's so many YouTube comments, so much love on videos of just people saying, I had no idea people love Kamala so much. I thought I was the only one. And then that, that comment has like, you know, fucking 200 likes. And it's just on video after video. And it shows how much this character, this man, this human being touch people when they were growing up with the, the art form of pro wrestling that they loved. I gotta recommend, uh, you need to watch it, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Ugandan Giant Kamala. It's a little Bleacher Report, seven, eight minute documentary. This is after he had his legs amputated, and it really puts you in a part of his life that's obviously vulnerable and fucked up and touching. It's, it's so well done. I love the hell out of it. This is a weird thing to say. Before that Bret Hart match, the one that I mentioned earlier in the episode, the Hogan-Kamala matches are easily my favorite Kamala matches. Hogan and him, man, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of formulaic, but the beats are fucking good. And that's why it is formulaic because they know what works and they know what can sell it. And just watch the Hogan, the 86, 87 matches with him and Hogan. There's so much fun stuff. I also got to recommend the Mean Gene and Kamala bloopers from the mid eighties. It's more stuff. I just love seeing these wrestlers throw away the kayfabe, throw away their gimmick and just show your, show themselves as a human being. And that's what I love seeing about these mean gene bloopers. The most identifying part of Kamala is, is the way he would talk about just his life on the road. After years and years, he wouldn't go out to bars. He wouldn't go out to clubs. He said he only smoked a joint once and it got him so high he was never going to do that again. But he would just hang out in his hotel room. He was a quiet dude. He kept to himself. Most of my life, that's kind of how I've been unless I meet the right people. But just... He made me understand him in a way just because it's like, shit, I, I know those feelings. Another way to just get me over on you is Kamala didn't believe in the death penalty. And as weird, as random as that is to say, he even wrote a song about Tookie Williams. And it was just, I don't, I, I'm a fucking hardcore with uh, the death penalty is bullshit and blah, 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 the Innocence Project. But as passionate as Kamala was, listening to uh, the couple songs he wrote about it last night really fucked me up in the most touching beautiful type of way and I, I did not expect Kamala to hit me in the fucking heart as much as he did because he put himself out there with his songs with his wrestling with everything he did and 
fucked up diabetes and all his faults. Because, like Jake talked about, we should talk about it. We're all fucked up. We all have our dark days where we're not in a good space in our life and we come off like an asshole. But that's not who we are, totally are as a human being. But it all must be discussed so you can get a full picture. And fucking Kamala hit me hard, man. All right. We have to once again thank Miles Kane for hitting up the yeah. Be the Book of Tear over on our Patreon. As well, we have to give some shout outs to some new patrons, Jay. Big thank you to Vernon Somoza for not only signing up but upgrading. Thank you so much, uh, Ver- Vernon Vernon uh, Somoza, I believe, as I would said. Also, too, thank you to Daniel Hayward, Danny Komet, and also a big thank you to Renewal of Keaton Stoneburner uh, for jumping on our Patreon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. We'll be coming back again. Speak, speak. Yeah, good boy. Hello, everybody out there. How's it going? You doing pretty good? I'm doing pretty good. Oh my gosh, I know. I was wanting to remind you about our Patreon. If you enjoy what we do, or if you don't enjoy what we do and are just bad at money management, head on over to Patreon slash Pod. And there's all sorts of levels. You can open up bonus content. You can pick the wrestler is going to be next. That's the big $50 level. And for five grand, I'm sure we can convince Jake to come wrestle in your backyard.